0: I tell you what, recording a podcast is thirsty business, which is why we are really excited to announce that this episode of Well and Good is brought to you by Clean Collective.
1: Clean Collective are changing the pre game by producing a range of 100% clean vodka and gin RTDs that, would you believe, contain no sugar, no carbs, no preservatives, are gluten-free and use only natural ingredients.
0: They are a premium alternative to your stock standard run-of-the-mill RTDs, are naturally sweetened and also bloody delicious, if you ask me.
1: Available only from your local liquor store. So next time you're in, look out for the gorgeous white bottles and cans and give them a try.
0: Howdy ho, Tim. Kia ora, guys. Hey, today we've got a very interesting guy on the podcast, Nathan Wallace who's quickly becoming one of New Zealand's leading experts on quite a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, <so laughs> quite a lot. Literally, just lots of things. As a neuroscience educator, he understands the human brain and how it reacts to certain things, and is especially renowned for his approach to parenting and helping children to develop healthy brains that set them up for life.
0: Mm. Yeah, so he's a neuroscience educator, so he basically just like knows how to interpret difficult neuroscience and then to convey it to us lay people in a way that we all understand.
1: Yeah, so he's a massive believer in the importance of the first thousand days of life and that how you raise babies in that time is crucial in developing skills and the ability to learn um, what will stick with them for life, essentially. So he talks about why that's so important and some of the best things parents can do for their little kiddies in the early years.
0: Yeah, it definitely, this chat definitely made me consider the things that we, the way that we raise our, our child, Milo, and um, yeah. And also we talk about different approaches to screens and how you can deal with that sort of stuff with kids growing up and social media and a lot of very interesting and important things that help to, I guess, shape our young kids growing up these days.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, it's a minefield really, isn't it, with with screens and social media, nobody knows what to do. So he's no he's really good at lending some advice around that. So the knowledge Nathan has is pretty incredible, but in particular, he prides himself on putting it in ways that people can understand. And that is the key thing that I got out of it too, that he's just... He's such a great communicator. So this is not just a great episode for parents, but it's a great discussion on the way we live in New Zealand today and how it can be made better in a whole lot of different ways. So I think that's going to love it. It's a
0: great discussion for any New Zealander out
1: there. Any great New Zealander. And that's you guys. Yeah,
0: so go you and enjoy.
2: Bye.
1: Kilda Nathan. Great to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, well, um, I've I've been very excited about this chat because we have a one-year-old son at home, so I feel like it's just it's very relevant for us as well as people listening.
0: I feel like it's really relevant for for everyone who has a brain.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's very true.
0: Yeah. So on that note, can you actually just give us a bit of an explanation about what it is that you do?
2: Really, I think I take complicated neuroscience and all of the research and the stuff we found about how the human brain grows and develops and all the interesting stuff over the last sort of twenty years. And I put it into plain everyday language that um, tells people how they can implement it and get the best outcomes for, you know, oftentimes it's for their baby. If I'm talking about the first thousand days or the teenager, if we're talking about the teenage brain, Um, or like you said, you know, actually it's just anyone that's got a brain. Just knowing how that functions and it gives people metacognition or self-knowledge about, you know, how your brain works. It's it's another tool in helping to manage your mental health and your mental well-being and your experience of life.
1: Yeah, and so I guess that's uh, every single one of us. So um, should, we, should we start off with um, kids? Because as you just mentioned, you um, talk a lot about the first 1,000 days of a child's life and how important they are. So can you talk us through why those days are so important and the best ways for parents to kind of approach them?
2: Okay, yeah. Um, essentially, the reason we've worked out that they're so important is because in the 1990s, we got access to brain scans. And they basically were magic machines that could see inside your head where you're still alive. Because everything before that was based on autopsy results, so dead people's brains. Um, Brain scans meant you could see live brains. And so they called the 1990s the decade of the brain, simply because how much we learned in that 10 years about how the brain develops was the same amount of information we'd learned in the 300 years before that because of brain scans. So the floodgates opened on understanding the human brain.
0: So that was, that was the, the age or the decade of the brain, right? So that's when they found out that they could really map and see what's going on inside a brain. So then how, how, does, how did they find out that the first, or you know, how do we know that the first thousand days of someone's life are so important?
2: Well, probably the biggest discovery they made in, that, um, in the 1990s was understanding that the human brain is designed to interact with the environment in the first thousand days to see what sort of brain you're going to need for the rest of your life. Now, before that, We'd sort of been in the age of genes, and we thought it was all about genes. So if Albert Einstein or Aparana Nata is your birth father, um, then they just thought, well, wow, you've got the genes to be really brainy. All we need to do is feed and water you. The, what we learned in the 1990s is that human beings aren't like that. You know, we're actually, the, the sentence that the literature uses to summarise it all is, um, the human brain is designed to be moulded by the environment it encounters. So it is not just set by genes. If you take a camel that's not designed to be moulded by the environment, move the camel um, from the desert and raise it in the first thousand days, you know, try and raise it in the first thousand days of snow and ice, it doesn't turn into a snow camel, it dies because it's genetically hardwired to have to live in a hot climate. But human beings, they're not like that. Um, less than 30% of your genes are set at birth, so over 70% of your genes are designed to take on a transcript from the environment before it's decided whether that gene's actualised or to what extent it's actualised. So that means you can take a human baby born of desert parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, the kids' entire papa, or genealogy for a 1,000 years has been desert people. You can move them and raise them in the first 1,000 days with the snow and ice. Not only do they live, but they flourish as over 70% of their genome allows them to adapt to that environment. So human beings can live on any part of the planet that they are born on, um, whereas animals are bound to the geographic climatic location because animals don't have this brain that's designed to be moulded by the environment. So that's what we discovered in the 1990s, and that's what makes the first 1,000 days so important because that first 1,000 days is when your brain is literally taking form and growing. And it's not just set by your genes, it's half your genes, but half of it is the data you gather during that experience. So just, you know, we've got a culture that thinks it's all about secondary school in New Zealand. Whereas what the 1990s told us is that it's not about secondary school, it's about the first thousand days. So if I said to the average parent in New Zealand, here's 50 grand, you can spend on your kid's education anywhere you like, across their whole childhood, but the sole purpose is to get all the best measurable outcomes at 32. You know, high qualifications, good job, not gone to prison, no domestic violence, get all those positive things we measure. So if you've got 50 grand, you want to get the best outcomes possible at 32, where do you want to spend it? Most New Zealanders would think you'd spend it on going to a flash private secondary school because that's what they think is going to determine all your future stuff. But actually from a research lens, with a really high degree of, of accuracy, we can predict your child's outcomes from secondary school when he's about three years of age. So spending the 50 grand when he's 11 to go to a flash secondary school will help a little bit. It's not a complete waste of money. It does lift outcomes a bit, but you're not getting much bang for buck. If you were purely gonna use research lens and you had $50,000 to improve a kid's outcomes at 32, there's no ambiguity at all. You would spend it in the first 1,000 days of life when the brain's actually designed to be working out its capabilities. And out of all the different things that we can measure in those um, early years, um, there is one thing in the research that stands out as being the most effective at getting good outcomes at 32, and that's having a parent stay at home in the first year of life. So if you're you're, you're gonna be cultural, you'd spend the 50 grand on going to a flash secondary school. If you're going to be research based you'd spend the 50 grand on having the most responsive parent stay at home in the first year of life. Because that's what's the... Because the data gathering process... I mean, it's a wee bit complicated and hard, a bit harder to summarise, but that data gathering, basically the best data a baby can get is the interaction or the face-to-face, kanohi ki kanohi, face-to-face interaction between them and their main caregiver. Right, the best, are, like, because interaction and communication is the most complex thing your brain does. Like, people don't really understand that because we're doing it now and it feels quite easy, and we're just talking and stuff. But you do it all the time. But in terms of how much of your brain is used by face-to-face interaction, it's most of it. You know, language takes up a whole big chunks of the brain. So that means if I put you on a brain scan and get you to do a calculus equation, that might feel like you're using lots of your brain because it's really hard. But actually, on the brain scan, only tiny little parts of your brain blow up when you're doing calculus because you're not using all those interactive centres. And then halfway through the calculation, best mate walks in the room. So you stop doing the maths and just go, you know, bro, how are you? Um, Now, that feels like the easiest thing in the world. But actually, the microsecond you recognised your mate, then boom, all of these areas in the brain come online because you had to bring online, you know, language with grammar and syntax and meaning and pace and pitch and tone and intonation and hand movements and facial movements and eyebrow movements. And your brain's got to put all of that together to come up with this face-to-face interaction so it uses most of the brain so that means the best data a baby can be getting in the first year of life to grow the most wonderful and the best brain with the best outcomes is the more of that face-to-face interaction they get the better actually the easiest way I get parents to understand that is um, statistically it's the eldest child who on average grows up to be the highest qualified and earns the most money like um, not every time but just most of the time so this is population data. It means that if I take 100 people at random off the street and measure their income and their qualifications and their brothers and sisters' incomes and qualifications, you will find the majority of the time the eldest child is the highest qualified and earns the most money. It's not every single time, because if your eldest child becomes a teacher, bugger all chance they're ever going to be the richest in the family, right? Because that's why we have to have 100 people so we can include the accountants, the CEOs and the higher paid jobs. But overall, on average, so large is that gap between how much the eldest child earns and how much all the other kids earn, that in neuroscience, we don't even put the other kids into separate categories. You know, there's no second, third, fourth. In neuroscience, it's nice and easy. There's only two categories. You're either a firstborn child or you're a not firstborn child. And that's because we just put all the other ones into not firstborn because there is no statistical difference in the outcomes for your kids two, three, and four. On average, they grow up to be the same income bracket, the same qualification bracket. The big leap is between child number one and all of the other kids. Now, we know that's not genetic. We know you don't just give the best genes to the eldest child. You know, only eldest children think that, but it's not true. Um, (laughs) It's pretty random who gets the best genes, right? Um, That's not a genetic advantage. It's an environmental advantage. So it's taking that information. We've just said about how interaction uses most of the brain, you know. Um, and now we know that your first child must be getting some data more of than all of the other kids. And what do they get more of? It's more face-to-face Full interaction. As simple as I can say it. When we, when we re- research things, we measure. We like measurable things in research. So that it is time, attention, what your firstborn gets. But we measure it a number of words spoken to them by their primary caregiver. Most um, firstborn children, their primary caregiver speaks on average 15 to 20,000 words a day. To your second child, you speak on average 10 to 15,000 words a day, and the same to all the subsequent. It's basically just because your first ones the only time you only had one kid, so you had more face-to-face interaction, more brain complexity for the child to engage in, because they're dealing with 20,000 words, not just 15. So they, more complex data in that first thousand days, wire up a more complex brain, you you reap the benefits of that for the rest of your life. This is why Scandinavian countries pay mum 80% of her salary to stay at home in the first year of life. It's not just because babies are lovely, it's an actual evidence-based, research-based thing to do to maximise a human's outcomes. There's actually nothing else we can measure in the research, no intervention known to the research, that more effectively improves a human being's outcomes than to have their primary caregiver with them most of the time in the first year of life. It doesn't have to be mum. The research doesn't show there's any advantage to it being mum. The research, uh, or even being biologically related, that the advantage is the baby be with the most responsive person available, the person who's going to interact with him the most, because that's what equates to the best outcomes.
1: God, oh, that is fascinating. It's yeah. absolutely fascinating.
0: I've... I've um. Got a question. So you're 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 talking about um, outcomes in terms of say success in um, business or work related qualifications, stuff. About, and uh, income. Yeah, qualifications. Have they have they looked at anything, um, any correlations between mental health and mental well being and that first child or subsequent children?
2: They do, but research is restricted by things being measurable. So when they look at income and qualifications at 32, it's not that they think incomes and qualifications is the most important thing. It's they're very easily measurable and validated by other researchers. I think everyone would agree that love is the most important ingredient for raising a healthy child, but you don't see a lot of research on it because it's not easily measurable. We say we love our children, but we also say we love Fridays and we love chocolate. So from a research point of view, That makes it difficult. But having said that, there is still a whole body of research that looks at that, that looks at the social emotional well-being. It looks like your middle child tends to be the one that's probably going to be the happiest. Um, Middle children have this advantage of having double the set of relationship skills because they're in the middle. So they've got to know how to be bossed around and deal with authority Um, But they've also got someone they can boss around and deal with power. So um, they tend to have more emotional intelligence, if you like, and communication skills. And um, so lots of little children, you know, go to helping professions where it's reliant that you communicate with other people.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's
2: fascinating. The country in the world that produces the happiest children consistently in all the research is Denmark. Yeah,
0: that's what I wanted to ask you about those Scandinavian countries you touched on. So what are they doing
2: differently? Well, see, Denmark has the happiest children, but um, typically the research looks at PISA scores, which is again literacy and numeracy. Denmark do well for that, but they're not at the top. That's Finland that's at the top. Um, but yeah, what do those countries do differently? I think there's two key things: they have a parent at home with the child in the first year of life. You know, that's just mandatory. So I think. So it's, that's, this, and that's paid for by the government? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we pay just as much. They don't spend any more money on their children overall than, than we do. It's just that they spend most of it in the baby's first year of life and then spend, you know, bugger all on them the rest of their life. We spend bugger all on them in the first year of life and then we spend heaps when they're a teenager on putting them into prison-type environments and doing punitive things and they all, most of them end up going to prison. Um, so it's just that we're investing at the wrong end. But it's not that it costs more, it's just about where you invest the money. Scandinavian countries are getting it right because they, you know, they're consistent with this neuroscience in this first 1,000 days. So what costs you? I mean, there is a guy called James Heckman that's actually done the maths on it. Because was going to say, for, you know, for every $10 that you're spending on a teenager, you could have prevented the problem by only spending one dollar. But actually, I was just making up those numbers. If you go to com, he's a, he's a Nobel Prize winning economist. He's done the numbers on it, actually. And uh, you can interpret those numbers in different ways, but it normally comes out as either 1 to 7 or 1 to 17. For every $1 you spend in that early period of the child's brain development, about 7 to $17 you will spend, you'll save on adolescent services.
1: Wow. So, okay, so this is a bit of a random question, but do you, do you think that um, house prices have quite a large factor in this because I guess if you've got a huge mortgage and you've got a couple that both have to work, um, how how do you kind of get around that or make the best of that situation for for your kids? Yeah,
2: I think sometimes because we have a culture that I remember when I told my mum with my first daughter that she was going into a childcare, at six, a childcare centre at six months old um, Mum said, you can't do that. That's like cruelty to children, you, you know, because her generation just thought sending a six-month-old baby into an institution to be looked after by was, you know, but that's rapidly become the norm. Um, so I've been in that situation where I was just like, oh, Mum, you're so old-fashioned. Should be looked after by trained teachers and, you know, be starting school early and make her clever and stuff. I know none of that's true now because I know I know the research, but I'm just saying I, I think a lot of it is actually letting parents know about the importance of this first thousand days. Because I think a lot of parents are putting their child into a childcare centre against their instincts in the first year of life, so they can afford to send them to a flash private secondary school later. They'd actually be far better off to just be poor for a couple of years, um, and maybe not have the flash second car, and maybe not re-carpet the house, and maybe live in a scummier suburb than you really would like to be living in, so that you've got less of a mortgage, but you prioritise that early time. So a lot of times when we're saying, "I we have to go to work to pay the mortgage, it's sometimes a bit of a cop-out, actually, because you could live in a cheaper house, you could live in a cheaper suburb, you could not have two flash cars. What are you prioritising? I know that doesn't make me popular with people, but screw it, needs to be said, right? No, no, and no. then, uh, so it's, some of it's just knowing it so that you know to prioritise it, and I didn't, so I put my kids in childcare centres in the first year of life, and they're fine. They're grown up and they're adults, because one thing doesn't determine your outcomes. Just saying, I work quite hard to make sure that my grandchildren don't go into it, because now I know. Um but um, having said that, sometimes you do. Sometimes you absolutely are in the situation where you're on bloody minimum wage and I even mean, you're already living in the scummy suburb and you've already, you know, um, got a scummy car and you still both have to work. And so absolutely that is a reality as well. Um, and for those people, I would say, maximise the time spent with your baby. It can be as simple as things like saying to them at, this, um, at the centre, um, can you make sure they have a good uh, an afternoon sleep? You know, I remember the, um, with my youngest daughter, she's in childcare and them, me picking her up. And she'd only be home for an hour and want to go to bed because she was knackered. And so I'm spending an hour with her. And when I said it to them, centre, is she having her afternoon sleep that I said she's supposed to have? I said, oh, no, we thought she'd be up all night if she had that. So um, we don't give her the afternoon sleep. But that, and I said, no, we'll go back to having the afternoon sleep because I, then that, when she gets home, then I've got three or four hours with her before she goes to bed. So it's just much better, you know, maximising the time with her. Also, children release cortisol, the stress hormone, in in the second four-hour block of being in the childcare centre. So in the afternoon, if they've been there in the morning, if she's sleeping through that, it's also protecting her from a lot of the negatives of being in childcare. And it's getting much more time with mum and dad when they get home. So you just maximise that time. The other thing is, if you're not, is to maximise how you interact with the baby. You know, um, I was just talking to a dad 15 minutes before I talk to you guys about um, responsiveness. And if you're gonna maximize that time with the baby, don't teach the baby anything. Don't talk at the baby or to the baby, respond. Have the magic golden word in your head as respond. So um, yeah have that, ba- I would just be as simple as have the baby in front of you, establish eye contact, and now just s- slow down to their pace and just realise you're not in charge of this interaction the baby is and you want the baby to know that. So you're going to wait and you're going to respond to them. Now, if they're a four-week-old baby, then they can still initiate. They can still go, you know, eh, eh. And so it just <laughs> simply means that you go back, eh, eh. So the baby is realising that you're, they're in charge, you're imitating them, Um
1: and they're kind of starting to understand how conversations work. It's sort of a back and forth. It's not just like one person talking at you. Absolutely.
2: And actually, the baby just acquires language, and their cognition moves so much faster than if you say if you're saying to the baby, "Dad, dad, dad, dad," because you want the baby to say "dad," and you, that's much better than ignoring the baby because you're still interacting. I'm just saying that um, that baby is not going to learn language anywhere near as fast as the parent that when the baby goes eh, eh, says eh, eh, back. Because that baby then learns, oh, he's imitating me or she's imitating me. And 90% of their language acquisition is through imitation. So if they learn that imitation early, that speeds up their language acquisition, which really enhances their cognitive acquisition. So the key word is responsiveness. And everybody can do that, no matter how poor you are, what resources you've got. You can can absolutely maximise your time in that way. Have good quality time with the kids. I don't want to say you can just do quality instead of quantity, because you do need quantity. We should spend more time with our kids and we should... Prioritise it. quality. You know, it's not enough sometimes, no matter how good you are at it. But certainly, it is a is a factor.
1: Mm. Yeah, I um, I remember when I was pregnant, and my um, calm birth teacher told told me she was like, don't forget to speak to your baby when you have your baby because it's because it's easy to to forget because they're so small and they don't really do anything in those first few weeks. She was like, it's kind of easy to just, like, not talk to them. She was like, don't forget to interact and make faces and don't just, like, feed them and pop them down and ignore them.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I often get Dad started off by going, just do sports commentary first if you don't know yeah. what to say on everything that they're doing. And he's putting yeah. his hair fist <laughs> up to his mouth and he's got to, t- you know, just do sports commentary, at least the baby's being surrounded by language.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah, that's great. So, okay then, so from a, in your mind, what would be the ideal um, childhood and then on to, like schooling then for, for oh, a kid up to say- that's a big question. Say, in a perfect I know that, that is that is a big question, but yeah. And what what do you think?
2: The ideal childhood is you're probably raised by your grandparents rather than your parents. <laughs> I actually wanted to touch on that because
0: I think I think that um, our system our system is a little bit backwards compared to a lot of say like um, Eastern countries where you know the grandparents then will live with uh, with with you uh, you know as you get older and they help to look after the kids and all that sort of stuff which is fantastic and what you mentioned before about how you know investing in the kids early on I think that really plays into that later absolutely. on absolutely yeah because I, I, I at the moment we just kind of uh, invest in them at their high school level because we're like, cool, now you're on your own, see you later. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of stuff around that ideal childhood. You know, your parents can do it wonderfully too. I'm just acknowledging that who doesn't see their parents treat their children much better than they treated them? It's just basic math that if you've already practiced it for 20 years, of course you're better at it and you're over the stuff. I've got two grandchildren, so I just see, like I – don't get angry with my grandchildren. Anger free parenting. I didn't have anger free parenting <laughs>
1: when I was parenting <laughs> their
2: parents. Oh, I think it was about 10% anger and 90% being wonderful dad. But you can't get angry with that. My grandchildren will be shattered if I got angry. Yeah. Um, so you're forced to have to find another method for fixing the problem without using anger. Turns out not that hard. <laughs> I really should have done it with my own kids. <laughs> oh, I'm with mine. My- <laughs>
1: Oh, well, you get a second go.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so um, the ideal childhood would really be that you have the most responsive person in your whānau um, available to you and stays at home for the first three years of life. There is no benefits to being in a childcare centre or interacting with your peers or any of that stuff in the first three years. They all kick in at three. and then from three to seven, you would go to something that looks very similar to Play Centre here in New Zealand, which doesn't ram literacy and numeracy down your throat. That has child-led play. What an adult might think is the kid wasting his time because he's building a dam for four hours and they want him at the preschool down the road where he's learning to write his name and get ready for school. Well, whenever you learn to read, write your name, know the alphabet and colours, whether you learn to do that at four or whether you learn to do that at seven, after eight, no one can tell for the rest of your life in the research. So it does not matter how early you learn that stuff. The kid who at the play centre who adults think is wasting his time building a dam in the river, a dam that no one needs, has no purpose, has no outcome. If you know from the brain point of view, he's learning dispositions that enable him to be a learner the rest of his life. Dispositions like sustaining your attention. He had, he, he, building a dam that he decided to build, he'll do that for like two hours. they take that kid over to the mat and tell him he's got to sit down now and do a story and he sustains his attention for lucky if it's five minutes. So the kid in the child-led environment that gets to do what he wants building the dam is actually getting a far better disposition on sustaining his attention than the kid who's made to sit at the mat and every five minutes we have to tell him off. Um, The disposition that sets you up for success um, is persevering through failure. When you're building a dam in the river, he fails 90 times before he successfully dams the river. Again, you pull him into the mat to do a a teacher-led, adult-led curriculum thing of, you know, what colour is this? What number is this? Um, After one failure, they often want to give up. So there is no disposition to perseverance or failure. So that's just a quick summary of how, actually, you'd follow what Play Centre does. Have parents involved, parent education, but the children are allowed to play. The children are allowed to be children. You know, the, the stuff that happens, that we've been evolving for for like a million years, that happens in that time, we should not cut it off so that we can ram literacy and numeracy and early but there's this erroneous belief that it's going to set them up for success for the rest of their life. And our parents mm. thought that as well, but... You know, we've got what we have, the parents don't have, is Google. We can research this stuff and go, they you know the stuff I just said. After eight, no one can tell for the rest of their life how early they learn cognitive skills, like reading, writing, colours and numbers. So there's no advantage to learning that early. Um, whereas the advantages are to have dispositions, which you see in free play. So that, yeah. And then from seven to 12, you'd probably, you know, do primary school, pretty much very similar to how it is now. We've got quite a good primary school system. Um because I think a lot of the damage done to kids in primary school is in the first two years. We'll say, okay, so we don't start primary school <laughs> until seven, and then everyone is really ready for what we think of as primary school, reading and writing and stuff. But I do seriously think a lot of learners are damaged in their perception of themselves as learners by ask, I'm asking to them to do that at five and six, when they just want to run around and play. By the time their brain's actually ready at seven to learn, they've had two years of being told they're naughty, and they lack focus, and they don't try hard enough, and they're disengaged but yeah but the curriculum I think we are the key competencies and stuff we focus on in New Zealand it's going under review now and we can always tweak you know but essentially um, we've got a good curriculum I think so it wouldn't be too different from the primary school we've got now then I think you'd probably at around about the age of 12, 13 you would have three years off the education system where you went into a mentoring relationship because adolescence is, doesn't, is the frontal cortex brain number four your higher intelligence shuts for renovations for three years um, so it's, Waste of time trying to educate it in some way. So in an ideal world, you'd go into a mentoring relationship then with someone who's older, wiser, that you respect. That might be that for three years you learn carpentry or three years you learn to be a baker or whatever. Um, But then you go back into the education system after that three years. So about, you know, so if you leave at, you know, you come back at like 17, 17. 18? Maybe come back at 18. Maybe it's going to be longer, you know, just to cover the whole way of lessons. And then from 18 to 25, you basically do secondary school and university in one go. That would be the ideal education system, I think, if you're just based on the brain literature and the brain research.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that when you put it like that, it makes so much sense. Look, I'll admit, Art and I aren't the biggest drinkers, but boy do we make an exception when it comes to Clean Collective's range of 100% clean vodka and gin RTDs.
0: Yeah, these drinks are completely free from sugar, carbs and preservatives, and they're super yum, so they really tick all of our boxes, don't they, Matt?
1: They sure do. Clean Collective was actually founded by two young Kiwis, Holly and Dan, and all their products are made right here in New Zealand. So by choosing to drink Clean Collective, you're not only making a better choice for your body, but are supporting local at the same time. Win-win.
0: They have a range of five delicious flavours, including a brand new pear and elderflower with vodka, and are available in four packs of bottles or large 12 packs of cans. Whether you're heading out to a family barbecue or planning a big night out, they've got you covered.
1: You can purchase them from your local liquor store and you'll usually find them in the fridges alongside the other premixes. They're the ones in the crisp white packaging.
0: I hear they're also the official drink of the Rhythm and Vines Festival, which is very cool also.
1: Oh, love that. So be sure to give them a follow at Clean Collective Official on Instagram and Facebook or head to their website, www.cleancollective.co for more information.
0: Cheers to drinking clean.
1: I'm keen to hear your thoughts on uh, homeschooling as well, because I know that the um, main sort of narrative around school is that it's really important for socialisation. But do you, do you know about in, any research around that? Like, is socialisation at, at that age Absolutely.
2: Implant? I did, a, um, as part of, a long time ago, but as part of my master's thesis, I did a... Um, a dissertation around um, the development of creative genius. So looked at what the elements are. And a creative genius had to be someone who created the field that they become a genius in. So they had to create the whole field. So it's more than just a normal genius, it's a creative genius. And looked at what the common characteristics are of them. And one of the common characteristics was being homeschooled. Most of the individuals studied who become creative geniuses because homeschooling takes off the ceiling. When you look at the research around homeschooling, it comes out very middle, it's very middling, and it really hides the fact that there's two extreme groups Um, because you get some people who are homeschooled just because they can't be bothered getting out of bed and they're drug addicts or they're... um, And then, of course, the kids don't do anything and that drags the average down. But if you take that group out, which is really a minor group, um, then they've got very, very healthy statistics and stuff. Um, Kids who are homeschooled tend to do a whole lot better, you know, academically and all that stuff. Um, They're way more inventive and creative, all those benefits we just said about play they get. But the one thing that people are concerned about is their socialisation. But, of course, everybody in the homeschooling network knows that. So they've got an active network in which, actually, those kids end up socialising more than kids who go to mainstream schools do, typically. Um, And they're getting all the benefits. They get all their schoolwork done in a couple of hours because you've got such low ratios and you can cater to their particular learning style and stuff. So, you know... Hmm. um, and then they get such a richer curriculum. So, yeah, I think it's all very, very positive. You know, yeah. you would look at the for homeschooling. That's for the kids. My kids kept asking me to homeschool them. I was like, hell no.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, the parent has to be totally on board, right, because it's a big commitment.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, is, is, there, is there a way to essentially provide homeschooling but not by an actual parent? So someone comes around and does that or maybe you have like a really small class of, um, of kids and then they're schooled by uh, a teacher but you learn basic like play-based learning and yeah,
2: absolutely. You know, interesting it makes, things. It makes me think of forest schools that are starting now where they're you know, outside schools where you get a similar thing. You get little independent schools. Um, I'm not the, the one where you just get a tutor to come in and do three hours a day, I wouldn't be hugely quick to support that model. It's not integrated. You know, when the parent is the teacher, essentially you're, um, you're in a learning environment 24-7. But then when you get a tutor, unless there's this amazing connection between the family and the tutor and they all know the same page and all on the same story, which doesn't happen often, you're in danger that the kid's only doing school three hours a day when the tutor comes and not... I mean, you still get the benefits of playing and doing their own thing. It's just so much better if that's all integrated into one whole. So you'd have to manage that one carefully. But if you've got a group of like-minded people together like your other, you know, alternative. Um, and everyone is on the same page. You know, that can work. A group of like-minded mm-hmm. parents who want the same sorts of stuff and you might have five kids there and there's a teacher employed and the parents who take turns of being hand-on and stuff. That can absolutely get good outcomes. I mean, school's good, but it does really put a ceiling on your development. And it can only cater to your individuality to a very limited extent because there's 30 kids and one teacher. You know?
1: mm-hmm. And I wonder... Sort of how how much of an effect bullying can can have on kids because like there, there's some really hectic bullying that that goes on in a lot of schools and a lot of people have um, experienced it and 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 that's serious emotional trauma and so I and
0: it's a lot easier now through social media
1: yeah 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 exactly so so I wonder if homeschooling kind of avoids that
2: I think like, the answer might be to give people the skills to deal with that I don't know if that's a strong argument to avoid school because you are going to get bullying. The idea is to give the kids the skills and the self-confidence and the knowledge to know how to process that and how to deal with it and how to respond to it rather than think we've got to get rid of all the bullies because that is just never going to happen.
1: And there are bullies in in adult life as well.
2: From a brain development concept, you know... um, we have a police force, That's a, that's they, they bully you into submission, you know, and the police force try and be nice and stuff, but ultimately, that's the model that we use. We punish people, we put them in prison, we, um, we're kind of a bullying society, so there is going to be bullying, so I think the answer is in teaching the kids how to respond to that, and I think so much of that is about having more focus on building up their sense of self-worth, focusing on self-worth rather than getting rid of bullies or trying to hide them from it by homeschooling them.
0: How do we do that, how do we build self-worth in kids?
2: So much of it, is, um, it starts with that responsiveness thing I talked about. Because from a newborn baby, if someone's not just going blah, blah, blah at you, but is listening to you, that straight away gives you a message that you must be worth something because that person's listening. So I think it's opportunities for your children to talk and valuing their opinion, um, even when it's, you know, like my grandson told me recently that, I think he said there's no such colour as orange, it's just yellow with red on it. And I thought, oh, well, okay. Um, Can't I He this that. Thing. He's thought that um, orange was made up by adults. That the other colours were real, but orange was just a colour made up by adults because it's just, um, yeah, because it's just red that's gone golden, something like that. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, by, by just acknowledging that, and go, oh, okay, I never thought of it like that before. And I suppose it is red made golden. You know, maybe orange isn't really, is not a primary colour. Um, <laughs> but listening to their theories and letting them <laughs> hypothesise and making the time just to actually listen shows them that they have self-worth. The way you parent them in terms of um, shut up and do as you're told doesn't teach you that you've got a whole lot of self-worth. Um, letting them do whatever they want and having absolutely no boundaries um, just sort of shows them that they're not worth bothering looking after properly. Um, I want to be clearer, though. I mean, the difference between if you're a two-year-old, you say, right, it's snowing outside um, today, you've got to wear your green jersey. That's not encouraging any self-choice or any sense that their opinion matters. You can't say to the two-year-old, it's snowing outside, you choose what to wear to kindy because he'll choose Spider-Man togs. And you can't let him go in Spider Man Togs when it's snowing outside. So, but you start to foster that sense of self worth by saying to the two year old, it's snowing outside today, mate. Do you want to wear your green jersey or your blue jersey? So you're given limited choice within a safe framework, but you're still letting him have an opinion. I think that sort of stuff brings about self worth. And all the stuff that we do already with our kids, you know, that we, that we read stories to them and sing songs to them when they go to bed and um, that we're nice to them. And yeah, all of that brings mm. in that self worth. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's it's just like respect and sort of tr- treating them like an equal to a certain extent like rather than than just kind of because I said so because you're small sort of thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. It's how trying to foster that relationship. Yeah.
1: What about what about
0: self-worth in uh, everyone else, you know, not just kids. Do you feel, do you think that that we have some major issues to do with self-worth as a as a, you know, as a society?
2: Yeah, absolutely, I do. And I think, you know, social media probably buys into that because we've now sort of got these two personas, our, our real self and our social media self. And so there's much Perfect. more pressure to be attractive and all of that
0: stuff. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on, on currently, like, the state of um, our culture in terms of self... self. Oh, my God, I'm really struggling saying self-worth. Self well, worth. Um, oh, that could uh, be a Freudian uh, slip. Yeah, there you go. Struggling to say um, I might want to I, work I, on that. I, I do think that a lot of, you know, a lot of mental health issues can potentially stem from a lack of uh, self-worth. You're so
2: right. You're so right. Um, um, I remember the very final Oprah Winfrey episode and she's giving her monologue to the um, audience at the very end of doing 25 years, whatever it was, of that television, and that's what she said. And of all the stuff that she's learned, what she's found is that most people, when you dig down, are scared that they are not worthy And so, you know, if she could give one thing to the world, it would be to let every single person know that you are worthy. But I think she really tapped into something there because I'm a confident, sometimes up-myself person, Um, but I still struggle with self-worth and stuff. So I think it's part of that human spectrum. And I think if someone as confident as me also grapples with that, not to a major way, but it's also, you know, it does not like I'm immune to it, um, then everybody must experience it. So I think, yeah. You have to manage that It's part of getting older and you know, um, yeah. being more mature and going, actually, it is important that I go to the gym and it is important that I get at least you know, 40 minutes of exercise three times a week, no matter how busy I am. It is important that I connect with the people I love and my family members, even when I'm busy. You prioritise those things because they feed your self-worth, your connections to other people, your... Um, I heard this expression on a television show yesterday about it really inspired me because I hate going to the gym. But I know I need to, but it's not like when I look real forward to it. I want yeah, to get it over and done yeah. with at the start of the day. Yeah. I really liked this expression that the person used on the television, saying, "I'm going to the gym for an hour is an hour um, worshiping at the altar of you."
1: I love that. I love that's great. That. It inspired
2: me because it's like, yeah, I'm actually investing in myself, and it helps me when I'm there. And I really don't want to be there, and I just want to cut it short and go home. No, I'm investing yeah. in the altar of me. I'm always investing in other people's altars. I need to invest in my own, you know, like that. Mm. So that helps lots of yeah. self-worth.
0: Yeah, that's really cool.
1: And I think it helps to um, take it away from, like, aesthetics as well to to find out a deeper reason why, to, to be like, I want to live a quality life. I want to be able to, like, run around with Milo. I want to, you know, be, be in active parent and to do that this is what I have to do. You know, it takes it away from like, I just want to be skinny and in
2: shape or whatever. You've got to have a reason, huh? Yeah. Because I do it more for the I mean, there are the benefits if you can stay, you know, with a nicer physical body, but I do it for the endorphin rush and stuff and just how much it lifts your mood and how how much more you feel in control of your life and optimistic and confident. You know, that's the main reason that I do it. It's like a bit of a bit of a dopamine junkie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. I'm the, I'm the same. Um, exercising for me is more about my just my mental health and just making me feel good. And then I think just the physical things that come from it are just you know positive byproducts. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, the yeah. yeah.
2: same.
1: Um, so just on to, uh, I'd quite like to, to get your take on screens because um, I know that screen time can can be a little bit controversial because there's a lot of guilt around it as as parents. Um, so I'd like to get your take on it from a research perspective um and how much screen time is is too much when should we be using screens what are your thoughts on that
2: um i do i like to give my answers based on the a summary of the available research not just on what nathan thinks because everyone's surrounded by being told what other people think what people need is a summary is if they had had a job and for 10 years they have to become familiar with that research here's what they would learn and then they can make their own decision and there's only two clear periods from a research point of view that we know screens are harmful. That's in the first two years of life. So, let, the thing that's going to make people feel guilty, um, so let's get that over and done with right at the start, is um, <laughs> the, the number of um, minutes per day that a child under two can look at a screen without doing any damage to their brain whatsoever is zero. As soon as a baby looks at a screen, it's a flashing light. And a flashing light is about basically arouses your um, brainstem, your survival brain, the, the, your whole role in the early years is to keep that brainstem as calm as possible so they can develop this higher intelligence brain instead. Whenever you arouse, it's like a set of scales, whenever you arouse that survival brain, that learning brain's going a little bit off, so it just really shouldn't, children shouldn't look at screens in the first two years of life. Having said that, lots of babies are and they're going to be fine. It's not going to make them blind or, you know, um, significantly lower their IQ. It's just saying it's not the positive thing to do. We're talking about optimal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then... Yeah, and we also know that there is definitely a correlation between anxiety, depression and screen time for teenagers. So um, interestingly, I didn't know this for my own kids, but um, if the children, if those teenagers come from a home where they've got two hours device-free time a day, as it might be, but, you know, they have to hand on their phones at five o'clock and for two hours you're cooking tea and doing the dishes and stuff and no one's got devices and then they get them back at seven until they, you know, go to bed. Um, if the kids have two hours device-free time every day, those children are outside the risk group for having anxiety and depression and stuff. So that tells me we don't actually have to not give the kids devices, because I don't see how that's possible. It's the modern world, it's where we live, it's Technology is never going to go backwards. You know, they didn't like rock and roll when it first started, too, but it didn't go anywhere. Exactly. You've
1: got to figure out how to adapt and
2: it Yes, you know, yes. Work it's got to be here. It. And that gives me hope. I don't have to take it away from them. I just have to go two hours a day, device-free times, enough for their brain to get all the benefits that our brains used to get, being device-free for 12 hours a day. In between that, in between two and adolescents, there isn't research showing definitely whether it's good or bad. I think you could probably see it, you know, best summarize it by saying if the kid is having screen time in those ages, um, as well as play outside, connecting with nature, interaction with real life people, relationships, conflicts, conflict resolution, if he's doing screens and that, then he's pretty much okay. If he is doing screens instead of that, then you're in danger of all the negative mental health outcomes and not raising a healthy child. So it's about the excessive use. Um, Yeah. It's just I'd, I'd have yeah. a healthy scepticism about screens if I were parents. It's um, it is feeding that addictive part of the brain that you know my grand my daughter's very very not into screens. So I don't know any other kids that have been more not have screens than my granddaughter. But now that she's three, nearly four. It's still like her favourite thing to do if she does happen to get an iPad or something. I think, wow, and she's probably the kid you'll see that's least exposed to it, but their brains just click into it because it's instant gratification. And so, yeah, I would be trying to keep the screens away from them for as long as possible.
1: Well, I guess, like, if you think how how addictive screens can be for adults, like, kids are are just drawn to them, eh? It's, yeah.
2: It's so hard as a parent, even as a grandparent, You know, it's full on. The kid's running around. I've just had my granddaughter stay here for a week. It's my grandson come as well. And you love that. But it uses so much energy, man. (laughs) It's so draining and so tiring. I could absolutely see why if I could just give them the iPad now, I could do what I wanted for 10 minutes and take a breather. I can absolutely see why um, parents want to do it. It's so tempting. but it's just unfortunately not very good for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: I wish there was a solution that was easy and not harmful. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, books are great, but I I imagine.
1: What if your kid doesn't mind reading? Yeah,
0: your kid might get bored of that. But I don't know, maybe if they're not exposed to screens, then maybe they won't get bored of books. I don't know. We haven't, our kid hasn't.
2: I think it's actually about us being available to them. They're often on screens because we're doing our emails or we're doing a phone call or we're leading our adult life. um, When they had. If they had a person constantly in relationship with them, that would probably satisfy their brain more than an iPad. But in the modern world is we don't, even if you're an at home parent, you're normally still working part time and doing stuff in your own life. You don't have someone that's just dedicated to just being with the child. You know, like I had a grandmother that wasn't allowed to work because it would bring shame on my grandfather that it looks like he couldn't support his wife because they were old fashioned sexist days. So I knew she was never ever gonna get a job. She was just 100% available to me. and I think that's Mm -hmm. when you're in a relationship like that, that would be the alternative to having an iPad and stuff and having kids around to be calm and stuff. But who can do that nowadays other than the really exceptionally wealthy? How many people, I mean, one of my best friends is a dedicated at home mother. She's lectured at university with me. She's got a brilliant brain and a brilliant mind. She could be anything she wanted to be and she's chosen to be an at-home mother that has chickens and that lay eggs. And um, So there are people that still devote themselves to that, but it's becoming harder and harder. You have to have a wealthy partner, (laughs) you know, for a start. Um,
0: And you also have to get past the social pressures, I think, associated with um, being a stay-at-home Parent, like there's a, there's a lot of pressure on us to want to be striving for greatness in the workforce, um, and the value is not placed on raising children.
2: That's right. I find her quite an inspiration for that reason because she could be a professor at the university and be lording it over everybody else about what a neuroscientist and how clever and stuff she is, and instead she chooses to think that motherhood is more important. So more power to her. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. About- well, I think that that whole like I'm just a mum thing is um, starting to to change. Like when you ask people, Oh, like, what's your job? Or like, what do you do? And, um, if, if some, some, somebody says, oh, I'm just a mum or, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a stay-at-home mum, that's becoming less and less and less because people are standing by it being like, I'm a full-time mother or like, I'm, I'm at home and I'm proud of that and that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, doing any less. If anything, I'm probably doing more than most people. I
2: think the brain development information has helped with that, people realising how there's a growing awareness of how important those early years are. So do find out that when they more so that when they go, oh, I'm a full-time mother, the people are like, oh, good on you. And I'm like, well, yeah. I it, what rewarding that is. Because my yeah. daughter's just been doing that, you know, with the, with my granddaughter that's nearly four. She was being a, um, you know, dedicated at-home parent in that first thousand days and until the child's three. And I think she noticed a change even over that three years from at the start of it, people going, when are you going back to work? When are you going back to work? When are you going back to work? And they're constantly having to say, I'm not going to work. I'm staying at home with my baby. Um... To, yeah as, even in those last couple of years it's got better with people going oh good on you that's such a wonderful investment to make and yeah
1: yeah totally um for general brain health so not necessarily just for kids how how important do you think constant learning is because I guess at the moment we like go to school potentially go to university then you sort of stop learning um so do you have any information around that
2: yeah it is about and like you say um I mean, there's so many different things come into my head there because we live in such a time, it's going to be very difficult to stop learning and because technology develops so rapidly. You know, your grandma still had to learn Facebook and stuff, even though she's a technophobe. Most of the grannies are on Facebook now. Um, So maybe we live in a world now where there's decreasingly the option to stop learning. But I I know what you're sort of saying... And it definitely see the brain changes. People that um, go like learning a musical instrument or taking up another language after the age of 60 is associated with massively decreased risk of dementia and um, you know all of those things because it's like brain gym to go and do those things. You ever learnt another language or a musical instrument? It's so yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's-
1: I'm currently learning guitar and it's slow and it's hard.
2: And I'm gonna learn the piano. Yeah. It is slow, slow way, And you feel like you're getting nowhere and that, you know, because you just sort of have to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And then one day it clicks. But before that, it just feels like you're getting nowhere. It's like that with language, learning another language. I learned to kōrero Māori and I didn't start until I was 18. It took like 20 years. (laughs) It's just so hard.
1: (laughs) Because you don't get that instant gratification now, which we're sort of conditioned to a little bit. So like if we try something and like, oh, I'm not good at it right away, Uh, next. Yeah, 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 that's right.
2: So just, yeah, conditioning your brain. It is like brain gym. So you have to absolutely keep learning the rest of your life.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to keep on pushing on with the guitar then. Yeah. Five minutes a day, five minutes a day. I feel like that that makes a huge difference because everyone's like, how do you find time to, to practice? But literally if you just pick it up every day for a little bit, yeah. really do
2: time is quicker, relative uh, eh? like, you know yeah. you want something done ask a busy person that is so true the busy person yeah. will find that hour someone who's only got one hour's worth of work to do all day will not be able to find the spare hour <laughs> to help you <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. time is relative eh? so you're right it's just picking up that guitar ritualizing it you do have to prioritize because so I thought no I want to learn to maori um, and focus on that and so I sort of focused on that instead of guitar but it's on my bucket list.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay, this, is, um, this is, might be a bit of a hard question, but I think like everything all boils, boils down to every one of us probably wanting at the end of the day to be happy, yep. to be loved, to, be, to feel a sense of self-worth, nailed at that time. What do you think, based on some of the research and science that you've seen, like, what are the some main ways in which people can help themselves to achieve those things?
2: Um, to realise that the voice inside your head you are in charge of. And that voice inside your head is supposed to be your best friend. And you shouldn't be accepting anything other than what a best friend would say. You don't have a best friend that says you're too fat for that, you're too stupid for that, you're not tall enough for that, you're not pretty enough for that, you're not clever enough for that. Best friends don't say that. Um, So if you've got a critical voice inside your head, you need to take charge of that. And you need to starve that critical voice. If I stop giving it attention, stop giving it, you know, stop... Um, playing the sad songs and letting yourself beat yourself up for 10 minutes in a row. Um, you know, make yourself do something else. Try and starve that critical voice. It's amazing how easy it is to starve. Two weeks of just going, rah, 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 rah and as soon as you're having a negative thought doing something else or quickly ringing something or busy in your frontal cortex with a procedural thing and that you're not feeding it, it dies pretty quickly. But that's only half the equation. You also then have to foster and create this best friend who's inside your head, you know, I said I had lots to do with my grandparents when I was a young child. So, you know, I have a grandmother who just thought the sun shone out of me and, um, and everything I did was divinely perfect. So um, it's like fostering that, um, that person inside your head, you know, foster that, yeah. I think that's one of the major things, how we take responsibility and take control of that voice inside your head. Um, and then it's about that um, valuing yourself. I think language is really important. Your brain is is voice activated. So what that means is it believes the shit that comes out of your mouth. So if you are saying, oh, oh no, I'm I'm stupid, I'm too fat and stupid, Um, then your brain's like, oh, right, I'm fat and stupid, oh, all right, and it programs itself to fat and stupid. So even if you don't believe it, don't language yourself negatively. If you catch yourself languaging yourself negatively, turn it around, you know, um, I can say, I'm really useless at at, at directions, a sense of direction, because I am, but my brain's not going to get better at it if I'm constantly reinforcing I'm really bad at directions. So if I reframe that and go with, um, you know, and say something like, um, I'm getting better and better, I'm learning how to do directions. It's not a natural skill for me, but I'm getting better and better at it and learning it, but it's just a wee bit more of a struggle than it is for other people. That's more of a growth way. So, Mm. yeah, I think fake it till you make it. If you're going to have bad thoughts, you might not feel like you can control them. You can, can absolutely control what comes out of your mouth, so stop saying the negative stuff about yourself. Stop saying I'm not good enough. Um, your brain is easy to brainwash because you're a human being. So and the, the most effective person about to brainwash it is you. So make the stuff that comes out of your mouth, even if you don't believe it. You know, if you think I'm not clever enough then what's going to be coming out of your mouth is, I'm a plenty intelligent enough person. I'm insightful, you know, I have good ideas. Um, intelligence can be measured in many different ways, but overall, I am an intelligent person. Even if you don't believe it, say it enough, you'll brainwash yourself that you are, and then you will be an intelligent person. There is an intelligent person in you, just like there's a thick person in everybody, you know, um, but it's which you foster. So, yeah, hmm. that's what I do. not touch that voice in your head. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's um really, really important because there's like sometimes I catch myself thinking things and I'm like, hold on a second. Like I would never say say that to anyone around me. Like I would never think that about anyone. Why why am I thinking that about myself? And
0: we're so critical and harsh.
1: We're so on ourselves aren't, we? ourselves, aren't we? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Not enough. Not yeah. enough. Not yeah. It says, Well, this is not enough stuff. We've got to mm. shut down that not enough. You are enough.
1: Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, I'm going to start start doing that. Um, but does this bring us to our, final to our final question? Okay. Well, our our final question that we ask um, all of our guests, Nathan, is uh, if you could have three foods and three foods only for the rest of your life, what would they be?
2: Oh, god. Um, <laughs> potatoes, because
0: you can just do Ooh, so many potatoes. things. So versatile. <laughs> yeah.
2: Because then like, I can still have chips.
1: And and just like good old fashioned mash, you know, which is always good.
2: Yeah um geez three foods my whole life potatoes are functional um
1: and delicious you could say. yeah
2: i think if i'm only going to have three foods the rest of my life it's probably a good time to become vegan (laughs) i'm not currently (laughs) vegan because i just think um beef (laughs) would be the other one but for long-term health and sustainability i'm in that situation where i'm not a vegan but i know they're right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, until you start
0: telling yourself that you are a vegan, you won't be a vegan. That's right.
2: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's so hard. You should have told me you're going to ask that question before. So I just said something <laughs> no, really but we to
1: No, but we really like to put people on the spot with this. Okay, then I'll just go with like potatoes, like
2: tomato sauce, and white bread so I can just keep eating chip butties for the rest of my life. I'll be fine.
0: <laughs> chip sandwiches. And How you'll good. be happy.
1: You'll be happy as well. That's, <laughs> that's right.
0: Thing. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome, Nathan. We appreciate your time so much, man. Hey, um, if people want to get in touch with, uh, with you or follow the work that you're doing, some of the speaking that you do um, or your website, how do they get in touch with you or follow you online?
2: um it's really there we've got a web page just go to nathanwallace.com and that's got a diary on it which shows you where i am and you can type in where wherever you are and it'll tell you when the next talk is close to you um i have lots of stuff on youtube it's got a youtube channel now used to focus much more on facebook and posting things i still do that so i and encourage people to follow me on facebook to get updates on things but really most of the material and a lot of the questions that people want to ask can be answered in, in that youtube channel so go to that one still just under nathan wallace Brilliant. Awesome.
1: Cool, Nathan. Hey, well, we really appreciate your time. That was an awesome chat. Good talking chat. to you guys. Oh,
2: cool. Great. Yeah.
1: Cool. All right. See you, Nathan. See you, man. Cheers. See ya. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw
0: But Wait. Before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message. Leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.